All right. Good morning, church. Thanks for being here with us today. Um, I, uh, yeah, I'm just incredibly grateful. I know these last weekends before school starts are a popular time uh, to get that one last uh, trip in. So I'm really grateful that you guys are here with us today. I want to, uh, so I just want to start by telling you a funny story. Uh, when we moved into this building, we discovered this pulpit, like buried underneath all kinds of debris, like just stuffed away in a closet. We were super excited about it. We like cleaned it up, polished it, restained it, brought it up here, but it was this weird flat surface. So I just like spent $12 on Amazon and I've used a little book stand all of this time. And Jason Rhodes, like a few, a couple months ago, a few months ago, brought up the idea of, you know, like I could probably build something for that. And he made it sound like super like humble and simple, you know, just a little thing you could put your Bible on. Yeah, and so I didn't talk to him about that. And then I cut, when we, I was at the Carl Junction workday, we were throwing out a lot of stuff. And there was like in the dumpster, this like broken tabletop like podium. And I was like, oh, if you kind of took that and maybe cut it, it would probably work on here. And so I showed that to Jason last Sunday. And he was like super cool, like, yeah, that could work. I could probably cut that. Knowing all the while that he had built this and like, so I came in yesterday expecting this, like, you know, he called me this simple uh, little podium, and, like, this beautiful, like, perfectly matching addition was built and fastened on here. So, uh, one, I felt like, I can't believe I took Jason this piece of trash, and, like, like, what was I thinking? And then, number two, I was just incredibly grateful, and I wanted to, to make sure to share with you where that came from, because multiple uh, people have asked me about it. It's awesome. This morning, uh, we're going to continue our series in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be transitioning to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, We're coming to just the final two chapters of the book. As we looked last week at Hebrews 11, the last few weeks, we were reminded of God's faithfulness in the lives of those who've come before us. Uh, The author of Hebrews in chapter 11 shared 18 different examples of prevailing faith and God's faithfulness in the midst of all kinds of circumstances, whether it's Abraham and Sarah waiting for God to, to bless them with that child, or Joseph, you know, you, his very bones declaring the goodness of God after he would live. All of these stories, God gave them to us for a reason, that we might be able to look back on the history of redemption, remember his faithfulness, and thus live bold lives in response to those stories. And this is where Hebrews 12 comes in. This morning, we're going to look specifically at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and verses 2. We're going to do a deep dive into those two verses. Hebrews 12, 1 starts this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He says, therefore, because we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he's just described to us those witnesses and because of those cloud of witnesses, because of those stories of faithfulness, let us run the race set before us. These final four chapters, the last two and these final two, the final four chapters of Hebrews are focused on this idea of endurance. 
And here the author chooses to use an athletic analogy to help the Christians mentally picture the point that is being made. It's highly likely um, they're in a Hellenistic, maybe in Alexandria or something like that, somewhere where they would know what it looks like for a coliseum to be filled with athletes. This picture being painted, it's not a literal one. And the idea that those who came before us are currently sitting in a stadium watching the events of our lives in real time. For one, the glory of Jesus is far too magnificent for that. However, I would like to believe that those who came before us are able to see God's continued faithfulness and the completion of what he began through them. I believe that like scripture tells us the angels are able to look upon and celebrate the gospel, so do those who came before us celebrate the gospel's triumph all over the world. I can't comprehend what that looks like, but that seems to be the idea of this imagery. And as we read Hebrew, as we read Hebrews 11 and the stories of God's faithfulness and the challenging lives of those who came before us, we were reminded that we are a part of something far bigger than just our short time on this earth. And we're reminded of that through this analogy of a race. When I was in high school, I ran track. Um, and I didn't actually run track. I was a thrower. But my senior year, I became a decent, dis a decent 200 runner. I, I didn't have the endurance to run a whole lap. And I was not fast enough to run with the 100 guys. But that sweet spot right there in the middle, for a big guy, I could do OK in a pinch. And so sure enough, that pinch came, like the final meet of my senior year, the conference meet, and one of the 4 by 2 guys got hurt, so I got plugged in there on the 4 by 2 And I had held my own with these guys, like just running a 200 by itself. I had never done a relay, but I had done it by myself, so I thought I was good. The baton passing thing didn't look like it was that complicated. I mean, how hard is it? Just hand a guy a baton. I didn't practice. I was very, very confident in myself, which was a big problem at that time. Uh, so as you can imagine, this did not go well for me. I get uh, my baton. I did a great job on the 200. I, I held my own. I get to the point where I have to hand off the baton, and the lack of practice comes to fruition. I, I couldn't get it to him. He was far ahead of me. So I, did, I dove, uh, just shredded uh, the, the track jersey, and we fumbled the baton and the whole crowd all at one time. Oh, you know, filled the stadium like gosh, and it, you know, we obviously um, were, did, didn't go anywhere <laughs> that year. I I knew what it meant to to run on my own, but I I didn't realize what it meant to run as part of a team, to be a part of a relay, something larger than myself. And one of our takeaways from this verse, in spe specifically, is that this race that we have been called to run. It's not simply about our stretch of the race, but it's also about the next stretch as well. God's faithfulness in our lives will one day be a testimony, a testimony to those to whom we hand off the baton. And in that way, we join the saints as those who are cheering them on. We are connected to something far bigger than just ourselves. This world is all about the idea of self and our moment and our lives feel like a movie where we're the star. But the, uh, Hebrews 11 and 12 are specifically reminding us that we're actually a part of this much larger story, that we run the same race as Abraham and Joseph and Rahab. 
And one day we will join them in watching the victory of the Lord prevail through this gospel relay team of misfits and sinners redeemed by Jesus. And for this reason, and so that we might run our leg of this race well, this verse tells us we must lay aside every weight and sin. He tells us that we must lay aside, meaning intentionally, intentionally, voluntarily, every weight and sin which scripture, this verse says, clings to us. I want you to notice the little intentionalities of these terms. If you're running a race, you're not going to volunteer to carry any extra weight around with you. Surely that's going to slow you down. And in a long-distance race, as the Christian life is, it is most likely going to prevent you from finishing, at least from finishing well. And so the author says, you need to lay all of that down. Like, imagine in your head a runner before a race. He's not going to carry anything with him. Not a water bottle, not a phone. He's going to lay everything down because the race is the priority. As Christians, we're invited here to regularly consider what we have picked up on the road of this life that needs to be laid down in order that we might run well the race that has been laid before us. If you are in Christ and you desire to run well this race, this scripture starts by telling us you have to let go of sin. Sin is a disease. And in Christ, you've been given the cure. You're no longer the former self that walked before dead in your trespasses, but you have been made alive together with Christ. His spirit dwells in you so that you cannot walk away and just live according to your own means. He is drawing you gently to himself in the midst of all circumstance. And now you have full access to the power needed to lay aside the wicked things that cling to us. Will you struggle at times? Absolutely. That's where endurance comes in. For the moment of struggle, it no longer defines you, but Jesus promises we have everything we need to endure because the one who healed you of your disease offers you grace and mercy, having paid the price for your former sins and the ones that are to come. So when you choose not to repent and to cling for a season to those former sins, because in his providence, he will let you cling for a season. You are choosing in that moment death and rejecting the life that is offered you. If you belong to Jesus, you will not be able to do this for long. He will allow you for a season that he might increase your dependence on him. And even that difficult season can be, will be used ultimately for his glory. But you can only hold on for a minute. Conviction will overcome you and you will eventually repent. But probably not before you damage yourself in a way that didn't have to happen, and others, while also making a mockery of the body and blood of Jesus. This is why Paul warns us not to come to the communion table without having examined ourselves first, because when we cling to sin while running this race, just carrying it with us, refusing to let go, in that moment we are guilty of making a mockery of the body and the blood, thinking our way to be better or at least more desirable than his graciousness. So, we're warned here, we have to throw that away. We have to throw off those sins. Don't let them slow you down. Don't let them tarnish your legacy. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And when you struggle, part of throwing off those things 
is being transparent, acknowledging that his body and blood are enough to cover you so you have no need to hide that which is clinging to you. Instead, we bring it before the body and and we repent and we throw off that weight that we might run well the race he has called us to. These four words that follow this term sin are the four words which cling so closely. Those four words translate a difficult ancient Greek word, uh, euperistatum, which can be translated four ways. It references things that can be easily avoided, things that are admired, things that are ensnaring, or things that are dangerous. Some sins can be easily avoided, so we must avoid them at all costs. That's why scripture tells us if I, if I must cut off my right hand in order to not sin, that, that analogy is put there to make this point. Some sins are avoidable and we must be willing to avoid them no matter what it takes. We have to grow to love Jesus more than the temporary escape they provide. Some sins are admired, yet admiration of the world is not for us. We have to grow to love Jesus so much that his admiration becomes more than enough. Some sins are are ensnaring, or the term could be especially harmful. And in those situations, we must be willing to seek help. We have to grow to love Jesus so much that we can be honest about the truth that we are ensnared, and we can invite the help both from our Lord and our gospel family that we need. And some sins are just more dangerous than others are. We have to be on guard for ourselves and for others. We have to grow to love Jesus so much that we're willing to lose friendships if that's what it takes to prevent these dangers from entering our lives and our churches. This is the purpose of church discipline. And while all this is likely evident, of course we have to throw off sin. Remember that the author speaks here not merely of obvious sin, but he says of every weight that keeps you from running the race before you. This means that sometimes the choices that you make, they aren't necessarily sinful if they're taken in a bubble by themselves, but they aren't necessarily helpful either. They're not going to help you run the race set before you. Consider a few examples. A job promotion might be awesome. Like, who doesn't want to make a little bit more money? However, is it worth it if it lessens the time that you have to spend with Jesus? If you choose to use an example, if you choose to partake in alcohol, I personally believe you have that liberty as a Christian. However, is it worth the risk of becoming dependent or of causing a brother to stumble? If you decide to sign your child up for an additional activity, surely this might aid them in developing another skill. However, is it worth it if it prevents you and consequently your child from being engaged in the rhythms of the local church and seeing that as a value. None of these examples I'm sharing are to be taken legalistically, okay? Like, that's not the point here. Promotions are generally good. You've been granted Christian liberty in Christ, and who doesn't love watching a five-year-old celebrate after kicking a ball in the wrong goal? Like, none of those things are to be taken legalistically, but this is examples of how some things I would not call them sin necessarily in and of themselves, but they're not necessarily helpful either. And we have to examine these things in such a way. These things and and many others, 
the question we ultimately have to ask is, is this glorifying to God? And thus, is this helping or hindering me from running the race set before me? Because we're not merely called to run a sprint on our own. Too many run a hot sprint in the name of Jesus but fail to ultimately reach the finish line. You can run a sprint for a little ways merely by your good works, but ultimately you will fail to reach the destination of glory apart from the righteousness of Christ that empowers us to endure. This race, it's a long one. No matter how long your life is, it is much more than a sprint. Therefore, we must be prepared, this verse says, to run with endurance the race that is set before you. Christian, God has set before you personally a race. And you have to choose each day whether or not you will run it. Next week, uh, my middle daughter's birthday present is that she got tickets. We're going to go watch the Chiefs preseason game next Saturday. Uh, my family's going to go. We're really excited about it. And I'm going to sit in the stands. I'm probably going to eat a hot dog. I'm going to enjoy being in the midst of the best football team in the entire world. And if I'm fortunate, I may even get to see the greatest quarterback to ever play, play a series or two. But though I will enjoy, that's right, I said it. I said it, and I'll, like, I'll argue with you about it afterwards. Though I'm going to enjoy being a part of that experience, make no mistake, I'm not on the team. Because watching a football game happen, it's, it's just not the same as playing in it, even though I use the term we a lot when referring to these teams. That's not actually the case. And watching a race is not the same as running one. Watching a football game, it requires a little bit of money, a little time, but it really costs me no comfort. It actually serves to increase my comfort, and that's why I want to go and watch. And unfortunately for many... This is the same motivation they have for their faith. They like to watch, but only for their comfort from the seats and the stands. Because to be on a team, to be in the field, that requires me to commit my whole life to that effort. To be an athlete literally means that everything I do, what I eat, when I sleep, all of it serves to support the endeavor I have given myself to. Watching a football game in the big scheme of things, costs me very little, but playing costs a great deal. And the crowds that gathered around Jesus, they gave very little, but the disciples would give their lives. This is the cost of stepping out of the stands, but it pales in comparison to the reward set before you by Jesus. To run the race that lies before us, we cannot be a spectator. Jesus Christ calls us out of the comfort of our boats. He calls us to leave behind our nets, that is, the places in which we find our security, and to follow him as he leads us on the race that has been set before us. To follow Jesus on this race, we will face obstacles, we will grow weary, and it will require all that we have. It will require endurance. The term endurance translates the ancient Greek word hupomon which Barclay's commentary describes this way. It does not mean the patience which sits down and accepts things, but the patience which masters them. It is determination, unhurrying, and yet underlay, 
which goes steadily on and refuses to be deflected. Patient endurance requires intentionality. We need our will strengthened through prayer, through appealing to our Father, being regularly in His midst, drawing on His power and His grace. We need our hearts to be inspired by stories of His faithfulness in the Word. We need spaces to find rest and intentional renewal along the still waters through communion and private time with the Lord, which has to be a priority. And each of these truths are summarized in that we need to run our race, this verse says, starting in verse 2, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the founder and the perfecter. Not only the founder of our faith, he is the perfecter of it. He calls us to run the race set before us, but he calls us as one who has finished this race and has done so perfectly. And because of this, he understands and he sympathizes with the trials that we face along the way. And he knows that which we will need, and he is faithful to provide it. Philippians 1.6 tells us, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will not leave you on the track, but he will lead you and give you everything you need to endure. And it's from this heart that Jesus Christ set his eyes toward the Father and he committed to finishing the race perfectly on your behalf. Then, now, we must follow him. That's all we have to do. We follow him as he shows us the way. And in doing so, we earn the prize that only he himself was qualified to attain. He earned this prize. He earned our redemption. When he endured to the point of a bloody cross which this verse refers to as the joy set before him. If nothing else, like, I just want you to, for a minute, just to consider what the author just said. He's referring to Calvary, and he say, calls it the joy set before him. How can Good Friday be described as the joy set before him? Jesus looked at the cross, and he felt the full weight of the agony that it was going to require of the cost. Yet in the midst of anguish, in the midst of sweating blood, he was able to look at the cross with joy because he knew what lied on the other side of it. He endured the cross because he looked at the cross and he saw your redemption. Certainly, he suffered. We're told that he went to the cross despising the shame. Yet he could endure the shame because he knew full well the glory that lied on the other side. He bore a shameful accusation, a shameful mocking, a shameful beating, a shameful crown, a shameful robe, a shameful mocking, being perfectly holy and good in a way that we can't even comprehend, he despised every ounce of that shame cast upon him. Yet his loathing of that shame and suffering could not hold a candle to his love for you. His desire for your salvation, your redemption, 
trumped all else. And thus through the cross and the empty tomb, you now have everything you need to endure for the founder and perfecter of your faith, Christian, is seated at the right hand of God. This is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Seated at the right hand of God could be the, the subtitle under the name Hebrews. The author has worked tirelessly to drill that term into your brain. He wants you to see above all else the magnificence of Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished is our great and final high priest. And that through that glorious truth, the hope of the author is that you might continue forward toward eternity. We've been in Hebrews since February. When we finish at the end of next month, we'll have spent 10 months um, in the book of Hebrews. And since the very beginning, we have continually seen this declaration repeated. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 8.1 Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In Hebrews 10.12 but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And Jesus Christ, our great high priest, finished his work perfectly and completely that we might be restored. He endured his arrest, his death, and his burial because he joyfully anticipated your salvation, having loved you since before you were born. Thus, when we come to Jesus Christ with our weakness, it's his absolute joy to bestow on us the grace that he went to Calvary to purchase, the joy that he felt when he looked upon the cross knowing your restoration was on the horizon is the same joy that fills him today when you come to him in need of fresh mercy. He never grows tired of offering fresh mercy. It's who he is. It's what he wants above all else is to pour out upon you that which he purchased infinitely at Calvary. And this was true on the day you were saved and it will remain true until the day you go to meet him face to face. In closing this morning, I want to share a story with you. On October 21st, 1942, the United States heard this story for the very first time. The story was aired from the NBC studios on a weekly radio program called It Happened in the Service. The story shared the day um, uh, that a African-American Navy man named Charles Jackson French um, endured one of the most heroic efforts uh, maybe we've ever seen a single person endure in the history of our country. Just a few weeks before, on September 4th, 1942, this event took place. I want to take a minute and I want to read you the actual transcript from the radio broadcast where the story of Charles Jackson French was told a few weeks after it happened. Abandoned ship, all hands, abandoned ship. Adrian was the junior officer on the bridge when it took a direct hit from a Japanese ship. 
He was knocked unconscious for a time. And when he came to, he felt the ship turning on its side and sinking. Although wounded in his legs and with blast fragments in his eyes that clouded his vision, he managed to float over into the water with his life jacket as the ship sank below him. As he drifted, he saw the Japanese ships turn their searchlights and machine guns upon the survivors. And then he heard voices, and he found a life raft filled with badly wounded shipmates. Upon questioning the men, he found only one shipmate who had not been wounded. It was Charles Jackson French, a mess attendant known only by his last name. When Adrian told French that the current was carrying them towards the Japanese-occupied island, French volunteered to swim the raft away from shore. Adrian told him this was impossible, that he would only be giving himself up to the sharks that surrounded them. But French responded that he was a powerful swimmer, and he was less afraid of the sharks than he was of the Japanese. And he stripped off his clothes, and he asked for help to tie a rope around his waist, and he slipped into the water. Just keep telling me if I'm going the right way, he said. French swam all night. Six to eight hours, it is estimated, he swam and he pulled the life raft well out to sea. At sunrise, they were spotted by scout aircraft who dispatched a marine landing craft to pick them up, returning them safely behind American lines. This morning, as you consider that story, I want to encourage you with two departing challenges. Number one, Commit yourself to endurance, that you might have the strength necessary to bring some wounded along with you if you must. All of us are different, and our race looks different. What matters is the glory purchased us through Christ. And part of our race includes being a community together that encourages and brings alongside those who are down, who are weak, who need help in that moment of trial, that we might all arrive at the destination together. Your life, your endurance is not just about you, but every person that God has put you in community with, especially in their moment of need and struggle. Number two, and the, the far greater point, is that no matter how strong you are, Never forget your need for a Savior. The call to endurance is not one intended to produce pride or self-reliance, but to increase your reliance on the founder and perfecter of your faith. Charles French was a legendary swimmer. But in the end, he lived only because he was lifted out of water just like the wounded soldiers. He was stronger than some, no mistake. And thus, he helped lead them to rescue, but all he could do was swim them towards a rescuer. He could not cross the ocean by his power. He could just lead them towards the one who would rescue. Whether you finish your race as the strongest of swimmers, or whether you finish your race being tugged along in a life raft, never forget that in the end, we're all in need of the same rescue. And we've all been granted the same rescue from the only one who is strong enough to save us all. This morning, let us pray, offering our gratitude towards that one who is able to save. Lord, thank you for all that you are. 
You are magnificent and glorious, strong, mighty. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in steadfast love. We are small. We're small, and yet um, our, own, our own whims, our, our moments of discouragement, our moments of distraction um, tend to, they, they lead us to believe um, in moments of, of ignorance, um, that moments of sin, that we don't need you near as much as we do. Lord, thank you that you are gracious to remind us that you will not let us go. You don't let us go about on our own devices, but for those of us who are yours, Lord, you are constantly drawing us back to yourself. Thank you, Lord, that you rescued us from the ocean of sin and death into which uh, we came into this world. Lord, whether uh, we come here today feeling pretty good about uh, our swimming or whether we come here this morning laying in a raft uh, wounded and beaten. Um, Lord, would you uh, fill our heart with encouragement at the goodness of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Don't let us go our own way, but bring us to our knees before you that we might know the kind of joy that Christ had in the midst of great suffering. In the midst of sorrow and sadness, this race, Lord, it's long. And some days it just feels so much longer than others. In the midst of that suffering, Lord, might you give us the joy that Christ had even in the midst of Good Friday. I love you and I, I ask this on behalf of this body. Lord, give us such a faith. Give us that kind of strength. Lead us above all else to endure for your glory and our good. And I ask this in the name of of the founder and perfecter of our faith, the great high priest, King Jesus. Amen.